Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Paul Morrissey on the topic, How to Read the Old Testament. This September 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Paul Morrissey is a lecturer in philosophy and theology at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. Chair, this is, I'm, I'm drawing together a few things from a few different lectures that I, that I give at Notre Dame from a few different subjects uh, to look at the Old Testament and, and, in a sense, how to read the Old Testament. Now, um, if you're like me, um, you've probably at some stage in your, uh, in your life of faith seen the, um, the Old Testament at some point a little bit sort of passe. A little bit uh, distant from the from the truths of the faith, the teachings of the church, the um, the New Testament. I used to think that the the Old Testament was uh, was certainly part of the Bible, but uh, not such an important part. And um, I guess it's only been since I've started to to go deeper into theology and, and really study in depth some of the the teachings of the church to realise how important the Old Testament is. So I guess this evening, what I want to do is just just really show how the, the Old Testament and the New Testament are incomprehensible without the other, and that uh, we really can't understand the New Testament unless we understand the Old Testament. Um, it's interesting, right at the beginning of the church, there was a, uh, a bit of a conflict on how to, you know, what do we do with this Old Testament? Um, there were certainly some in the church who wanted to do away with the Old Testament, and this was one of the earliest battles in the church, was, was you know, how do we look at the Old Testament. Uh, one of the more famous of these was uh, the early uh, heretic Marcion, who was uh, a heretic on many different fronts, but uh, one of the fronts he was a heretic was uh, that he thought that the Old Testament was about a God of law and the New Testament was a God of love and he needed to get rid of the Old Testament. The other big heresy that Marcion was into was uh, what we call docetism. He, he believed that Jesus was not... Uh, was not really human. And there's a great anecdote the, in the, uh, the second century of St. Polycarp, the great Martin, who, uh, who happened to meet Marcion in Rome one day. And uh, Marcion spoke to uh, Polycarp, sort of trying to big note himself, and said, hey, Polycarp, do you know me? And, and Polycarp said to Marcion, Yes, I know you. I know the firstborn of Satan when I see him. And, uh, <laughs> one of the more famous uh, early confrontations in the church. Polycarp went on to be burnt uh, at the stake in Smyrna, the great martyr of the church. So it was a, it was a conflict, but very early on the church uh, understood that uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament go as one. I mean, if you read the New Testament, it's, it's quite obvious that... Um, that Christ himself is, comes out of the Old Testament. We can't understand it without, can't understand Christ without the Old Testament. So what I thought I'd do is, is just draw out a few, you know, briefly, just some, some analogies and some typologies, we call them, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I find this a really helpful way in which to, um, to understand um, not only uh, the Old Testament, but understand my faith, understand our faith in Christ. And so that's, that's what I hope to do, and I've, you know, I've got a lot of them, so I'll, I'll speak about a few of them and see how we go. And I think uh, we'll have some time for questions at the end. Mm-hmm. 
That's right. Just before I, I do that, I, I think one thing that's... Um, for me, reading the Bible is, um, has been a, a slow and um, a very steady sort of growth in my, my life of faith. I, I guess I began, uh, in a sense, my conversion was, was more through, you know, perhaps a personal meeting of Christ. And then I was, uh, you know, I really believed in, in what the church had to say. And it's only really in the last few years that I've, I've, I've come to understand and really more appreciate the, the Bible and reading the Bible. And um, one thing that struck me in the last few years is, is reading the Church Fathers and how they read the Bible. And so there's, there's one, one way of understanding how the Church Fathers read the Bible that I think is a really helpful way. And I thought I'd share this with you first and then speak about some of these typologies. And, and the analogy of how the Church Fathers read the Bible is, is like how they... Um, it can be compared to, to, to getting bread from the scriptures. This is what the church fathers tend to do. And the, and the way they do that is they begin with the scripture which is wheat. The scripture is like a, some grains of wheat, which is valuable and needed. So they take the wheat. But the first task that they have with this wheat to make bread is to, to strip off the husk of the wheat. So they strip it off. And... And this, what this means in practice is that they, they strip off all that, that's um, surrounding the text, like the historical context, you know, the author, the style. Everything sort of surrounds the wheat. And, uh, into what they call the husk. And you strip that off. And once this is done, you get to the, the living grain of the faith that's in the text. Uh, the living grain, which is necessary to make the bread. Now, in order to do this, you need, obviously, two things. You need faith, faith in the actual you know, living grain that's in the, in, the, in the wheat, but you also need skill to be able to do that properly, to take it off without damaging the, uh, what's underneath. After this, they needed to ground this, this grain and to produce flour. And so they did this by meditating on it, by crushing the words, in a sense, meditating on it slowly, reflecting on it with their own life. And once they have the flour, they need the water. The water is the prayer. They pray with the text. So the flour and water are brought together as they pray and meditate on the text. Finally, obviously, it needs to be put in the oven. We need to put the, uh, the flour and the water in the oven to make the bread. And this they compared with the fire of the trial of the Christian life. So they meditate, they prayed on the text text, in a sense, becomes bread, nourishing bread in their life once it's passed through the fire, the test of their own, the trial of their own Christian life. I think it's quite a strong um, analogy of of reading scripture. Seeing scripture not as something dead, not something that's, um, you know, in a book, often get the sense, you know, I've got a Bible sitting in the room and, you know, it's a Bible. And it it gets some kind of... Um, in fact, it's it's an it's an analogy of, of um, it's not by one of the fathers. It's by a, actually a, a Swiss Dominican priest, Servet Pincayer, who's uh, written a lovely book on Christian ethics. But he, in the section on the fathers, he he, he gives this analogy of the, the fathers and how they do scripture. So I can give you the the title of that book, but I find it a really really strong one, a really powerful one. And um, yeah, so the, the word of word of God, I've come to realise, is something that's not dead. It's something really alive. And I'm always touched by the, the great conversion of Augustine, the little 
boy in the garden who says, Tole Leje, take up and read. And uh, literally just take up the nearest bit of scripture and read it. Because it's alive, it spoke, speaks to Augustine, converts him. The word of God is not something in the past dead, but really speaks to us. And, and this is true, obviously, of the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks to us just as much. And it is the word of God that cuts like a knife and uh, can really become nourishing bread for our, for our spiritual life. So I think that's really important. Overviews of introduction. Um, so I'll share a few typologies that I think are, are really helpful and, uh, and also some thematic things together. I think a really great theme that draws together the entire Bible is one that, again, I've borrowed from a couple of, I think, really great uh, sort of youngish American theologians who are working at Ave Maria University at the moment. They've got a great book out, which is a theology, um, really a, a theological introduction to the Bible called, um, I'm trying to remember the title now, it's gone out of my head, uh, Holy, Holy Kingdom, Holy People, or Holy People, Holy Kingdom, one of those. And they see the whole Bible is in this theme. And I think it's a really helpful one. The idea of the kingdom of God. If, you, if you've got a kingdom, you need two things. You need a people and you need land. And basically the Bible is about bringing about the, the kingdom. You need a holy people and a holy land. And the Old Testament and the New Testament entirely is about this. It begins, obviously, in the garden. where we have a kingdom, a true kingdom, because we have a holy people, Adam and Eve, without stain or impurity. And we have a holy land, a land in which God dwells, God walks in the garden. We have a holy land and a holy people. And obviously right at the beginning there we have the breakdown of this kingdom. And in a sense the rest of the Bible is about us restoring this holy land and a holy people. Um, the Old Testament through all the covenants is about God progressively you know, bringing about this holy land, holy people. It's not fully... Um, brought about or initially realised until Christ himself who ushers in a holy land. The holy land is himself. You know, it's a big thing in the New Testament that Christ is the temple. He refers to himself as the temple. It's the land in which we enter through the church, through baptism to become part of the holy land. But also um, a holy people. We are made holy through Christ. So it's through Christ that the kingdom is initially realised, won't be fully realised, obviously, until the second coming. So I think that's a, it's a nice theme to, to draw the two testaments together. And, um, but I'll give some typologies now about um, that, that also link, and some of these you'll be very familiar with, some maybe uh, are not so familiar. So I'll, I'll, I'll speak about a few. Uh, now, a typology is basically comparisons. You've got two types and we compare Christ with a type in the Old Testament. Now, the, the most famous one is obviously between Jesus and Adam. So Paul takes this up in his, in his letters, that, um, that Christ is the new Adam. And this is a, a famous typology um, that's alluded to, obviously not, in the new, not only in the New Testament, but right from the beginning of the church. All the great uh, early fathers of the church use this analogy between Jesus Christ and Adam. And it's a great way to, to, um, to again, see the, the Old Testament and the New Testament as, uh, as one um, revelation. In a sense. Um, so 
So just a couple of things. I guess uh, Michelangelo also saw this if you've been to the Sistine Chapel on the, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. He's painted uh, a great painting of Adam, the creation of Adam. And if you look at the, uh, the Last Judgment, the resurrection of Christ, the same face is on, on both. It's the same features. Christ is the, is the new Adam. So Michelangelo gets this truth from the truth that we get from the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings, but also in, in, um, in the Fathers of the Church. So just a couple of uh, ideas from this connection that the Fathers draw out. Um, one is obviously the obedience of Christ juxtaposed with the disobedience of Adam. And, uh, and this takes place in, in, in the garden both times. First, uh, the disobedience is in the garden of Eden. Adam disobeys the, uh, the will of God. And in the garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane uh, Christ, the new Adam, um, and certainly the fathers really thought that the garden of Gethsemane was, was the garden of Eden. Um, whether that's the case or not, I'm not sure. I did, did. I had the great joy of visiting the Garden of Gethsemane and praying there. Some of the olive trees are said to to date from the time of Christ. They're ancient trees, and it was funny. It was I don't know if it was my tiredness or the fact that uh, this was such a spiritual experience. But I, really, I literally couldn't stay awake. I was in there, just like the apostles. <laughs> Might have been my tiredness, but. Um, it's a, it was a profound experience and um, got a sense of this idea that Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane um, is the obedient one, the new Adam, um, who restores us to obedience to God when he prays, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Um, another famous uh, image about Adam and, uh, and Christ is to do really with the creation of Eve, that Eve is born from the side of Adam. In his sleep, the deep sleep of Adam, um, and likewise the new Adam falls asleep on the cross. As he falls asleep, he's, he's wounded. By the, not wounded, dead, but he's uh, pierced by the sword, by the, by the lance, and from his side flows the new Eve, the blood and water, the Eucharist, the baptism, the church. And so these are two of the famous ones. Uh, the other one is similar the tree of the cross compared with the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One brings about our, our damnation, the other brings about our salvation. That's probably the most famous of the typologies. Another one which I, I find a very beautiful one is uh, the sacrifice of, of Isaac. Um, it's also from Genesis chapter 22, the famous story of Abraham and Isaac. And, um, and you're familiar with the story of Abraham being asked by God to offer up his son, Isaac, his, his beloved. And Abraham, with a heavy heart, no doubt, takes Isaac to the Mount, to Mount Moriah. And it's, uh, it's one of the most moving uh, texts in all of Scripture when, uh, when Isaac speaks to the father, his father Abraham. He says, you know, look, got the fire and the wood there. Dad, where, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And you can just imagine, you know, Abraham's sort of heavy heart knowing what he's about to do. He gives a lovely answer, though. He says, God will provide himself 
a lamb for the burnt offering. Little did know Abraham know though the full truth of that statement. Now you know that you know as Abraham's about to slay Isaac, uh, the angel stops him. A ram appears as, as the sacrifice, the one who will be sacrificed. And because of this great act of faith of Abraham, um, God gives Abraham the third of his blessings, the third covenant. And this third covenant is the one in which um, he says to Abraham, all your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed because of your action, because of your obedience. And this is important because of, of where this occurs. It occurs on Mount Moriah and Abraham renames this mountain as, as the, the mountain upon which the Lord provides, the place where the Lord provides. Which in Hebrew is, is the first, uh, one of the... Uh, one of the um, parts of this word is Jireh, meaning Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem, which this occurs, what will later be called Jerusalem, the city, the holy city. Now it's interesting though also here that Abraham um, says that God himself will provide the lamb. But God does not provide a lamb, he provides a ram, which is not quite a lamb. And so in a sense from that moment on, the people of Israel are waiting for God to provide a lamb offering. And they think that certainly in the time of Moses and the Exodus that, that God is, this is the time this is the lamb that was spoken about and they uh, we get the lambs, the unblemished lambs but God himself does not provide these lambs, it's Israel. Israel provides the lambs. Um, furthermore, once Moses and Joshua bring the people into the promised land, eventually have the monarchy and, and Mount Moriah becomes Jerusalem, the great temple of Solomon is erected and again, you know, thousands upon thousands of lambs are slaughtered in this, in this temple. But again, it's still not God who's providing the lamb. It's not God who's providing these lambs to sacrifice. It's not until we get to explicitly John's Gospel. John the Baptist, the great bridge between this Old Testament and the New Testament. He sees Christ and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God himself has finally provided this Lamb um, promised to Abraham. And it's this um, where, where Christ truly is the fulfilment of this of, um, through these great covenants through the Old Testament. And obviously it's Christ himself on this same mount, Mount Moriah, who will, who will be the sacrificial lamb. Another interesting typology is between Christ and Jacob. Jacob, the son of Isaac. And, and Jacob's the one who will be named Israel. And certainly in the, in the New Testament, Christ is seen as the new Israel. A universal Israel into which we can all enter and be the chosen people. Now, Jacob, when he was um, fleeing from his brother, Esau, uh, he spent the night in the open. He was sleeping with his head upon a stone and he had this strange dream. You know, the dream, this famous dream of the ladder, Jacob's ladder. He dreamed, this is Genesis 28:12. he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. 
And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jacob's vision is an important one because it it shows where heaven and earth are meeting. The angels are going up and down and heaven and earth are sort of kissing. This won't be really fulfilled until Christ the incarnation. But it's the meeting between heaven and earth. And Jacob will soon be renamed Israel. Israel will personify, in a sense, in the Old Testament, this meeting between God and earth, between heaven and earth. When he wakes up from his dream, Jacob says, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. How awesome is this place, he says. It is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. He renames the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And so here, Jacob's, in a sense, beginning to see the fulfilment of this holy land. This great theme of the the Bible, holy land, holy people. Again, in John's Gospel, right at the beginning, Jesus is speaking to the faithful Israelite, the faithful son of Jacob and Abraham, called Nathanael. And Nathanael recognises Jesus as son of God, king of Israel. Jesus, in reply to Nathanael, claims for himself this great dream of Jacob. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The exact same image Christ uses as Jacob sees in his vision. Jesus then becomes the new Bethel, the house of God, the new temple, the holy land. Christ is the holy land, the indwelling of God himself. And it's, a, it's again, it's a, I think a really strong typology that... Um, Again, we don't understand, particularly John's Gospel, without understanding uh, or seeing Christ as this new Israel, new Jacob. Another great typology that the fathers saw between the New Testament, Old Testament, and Christ and the Old Testament was between the kings, particularly King David, and this is you know, blatantly obvious in the, in the Gospels because you know, Christ is referred to as the son of David. But I think it's worthwhile just pointing out well, where does this come from, this idea? You know, what, what does it mean? What does it mean fully in, in, in a deep theological sense? Now, God did not desire, we read in the Old Testament, God didn't really want a monarchy for the Jews. He didn't, wasn't a big fan of this, you know, for obvious reasons. That, uh, the kings that surrounded uh, Israel weren't too holy. And this was a sort of a human thing. You know. Why do you want a human king? I'm your king. It's a jealous God. And you read this in Samuel, the first book of Samuel. Yet God in his mercy and in his wisdom, infinite wisdom, accedes to the, uh, to the wishes of the Israelites. And so they, they begin with the kingdom, the monarchy. And, um, and God really establishes a covenant with David and he promises that the son of David will rule an external throne. This is the Messiah, the anointed one. And so, ever since David, the Jewish people have been waiting for this son of David. And the two famous texts that relate to this are, are in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God says, I will be his father, referring to David's son, and he shall be my son. 
and Psalm 2, which is a coronation psalm, a psalm that was sung to crown the king. And in Psalm 2, the psalmist declares, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As God's son and the anointed one, the king is there to mediate God's presence. This is the, the idea of the king in the Old Testament. The king wasn't there just to you know, have a lot of money and order people around. He was there to actually mediate God's presence to the people. But also, not only that, he was also there to mediate um, or to, to try to make the people righteous, to be faithful to the covenant. Now, you don't have to read too far in the Old Testament to find out how poor the kings were at this. Um, certainly the kings were great, but they weren't. So. They were human, and they certainly couldn't live up to this idea of really truly mediating God's presence. And the other thing they were called to do as part of this role of mediating God's presence, making the people holy, was to be shepherds. It's the whole um, idea of the shepherd king in the Old Testament. Um, and so some of them, like David, was literally a shepherd before he became king. Now it's interesting, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament are always trying to draw Israel back to the covenant. And Ezekiel is the one who really tries to bring the kings back. He's quite strong as the voice of God. And there's a very important chapter in Ezekiel, uh, chapter 34, which deals with this question of the unfaithfulness of the kings. And Ezekiel writes, Thus says the Lord God, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, he's talking about the kings, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? Further on, he says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. God's against the kings now. And then God promises through Ezekiel, I myself, I myself, God says, will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the stray. This uh, chapter of Ezekiel, I think, is um, where we, is the only way we can understand when Christ says, I am the good shepherd. And I am the shepherd. It's God's the shepherd. Um, I'm the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for sheep. So again, it's Christ himself who will mediate the presence of God, like Israel was called to do, like the kings were meant to do. Christ himself. Christ himself is the holy land and who will create a holy people by being truly a shepherd. But more than that, and John's Gospel, is, it's often John's Gospel here, but John's Gospel again draws this even further. Well, when Christ ascends, what happens then? What happens when... Christ says, who's the shepherd? Who's going to shepherd the sheep? Because again, this comes from the Old Testament. Christ is the new Israel. Who's going to rule the sheep now that Christ ascends in this, in this sense, intermediate time um, of sanctification, the time of the church? Who's going to be the shepherd? And it's clear in John's Gospel again, chapter 21, in the great dialogue between uh, Christ and Peter. It's the church with Peter. As the, um, as the chief apostle who will be the shepherd. Each time Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Three times Peter says yes, Lord. And three times Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. It's no accident he says feed my sheep. Again, he's giving Peter 
a role, in a sense, of the Davidic king, to be the shepherd king, to lead the people, to make them holy, but also it's through the church that people are, are made righteous, are sanctified. Um, I'll give uh, I'll give a couple more of the uh, I think helpful sort of uh, theological themes that relate the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, one I think is a is a really uh, really helpful one in looking at the, the resurrection, particularly the the um, the great account of the the two disciples on the way to Emmaus in Luke's gospel. And uh, you know, know, this, know the account that Christ says to them at one stage, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, the thing that scandalised these disciples was you know, that the Messiah could suffer so much. But Christ says, well, wasn't it necessary? Haven't you understood the Old Testament. And so he explains them. We don't know how long he does. It would have been great to have that recorded. It would have helped us quite a deal. But uh, but I think one thing that certainly Christ would have uh, explained was the Deuteronomic curses. And this is sometimes called the covenant logic of the cross. Now the Deuteronomic curses, we need to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. And um, and what we have there in Deuteronomy 28, that the blessings and the curses of the covenant are laid out before Israel. And basically, um, if Israel disobeys the covenant, oh, sorry, if they obey the covenant, they will, they will experience prosperity, they will have peace, and enjoy security in their land. If they disobey the covenant, they will be crushed, it says, by Gentile nations. They will be naked and thirsty, and they will be eventually destroyed. Now, the covenant, the most helpful way to think about covenant is the, the only real human analogy we have is marriage, the marriage covenant. And the same thing applies, obviously, with the marriage covenant. Those who are faithful to the marriage, security, peacefulness. The sociologists tell us today they'll even have prosperity. If you're married, you're a lot more likely to be prosperous. Um, all these things happen. If we're unfaithful, anguish, separation, discord. Same for Israel. But I think the descriptions of what will be happening is, is where the covenant logic of the cross comes in. Because all through the Old Testament, Israel is unfaithful. They suffer many of the curses. For example, they're exiled. They're taken out of Israel. The temple's destroyed. Um, they suffer at the hands of the Gentiles. But they're not wholly crushed. They're not completely destroyed. This is where the covenant logic of the cross is. It's Christ himself, it's Christ himself who will be stripped naked, literally, as uh, Deuteronomy says, who will be thirsty and will be eventually put to death at the hands of the Gentiles. He, Christ himself, as a new Israel, will take on the entire curse the book of Deuteronomy and be crushed, destroyed at the hands of Gentiles. And he does this to usher in this new covenant. And this is why he says to the disciples, 
This is why Christ had to suffer. He had to suffer the curses of Israel as the new Israel. And this is made well spoken about by St Paul in his letters. I'll give you uh, there's two examples. The most obvious one is in Galatians chapter three. He says explicitly, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So Paul explicitly says that Christ becomes this curse for us. For it is written, Cursed be the one who hangs on a tree, and in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. And it's this idea, this covenant logic, logic of the cross, that helps us understand you know, Mark's gospel, Mark's um, account of the death of Christ, the three great verses, of, um, three verses in a row. The first one, Christ breathed his last. The next one, the temple of the veil, the veil of the temple is torn in two. And the third one, the centurion says, Behold the Son of God. So Christ breathed his last covenant. He's taken on the covenant curse. And then what happens immediately in the temple, which is, you know, this is the temple, the curtain was in front of the Holy Holies, ripped asunder because now that everyone's opened into the holiest of holies through Christ. And then the next verse immediately after is the Gentile saying, Behold the Son of God. Gentile now can really recognise the Holy of Holies. And this is why Christ says to the disciples in the later Emmaus, Christ had to suffer. The new Israel, he's, he's the one who has to bear the curse so that the covenant could be opened up to all people. I'll finish with one, one more, and that's the uh, just to connect Christ with the law of Moses. And this is uh, in some ways, some of the one of the hardest things to do because really the Old Testament sometimes for us you read it and you think, well, it doesn't seem to quite weigh up with what we read in the New Testament. Certainly, Christ does away with some things that we have in the Old Testament. But as a general rule, what the New Testament uh, keeps is obviously the truth about God and um, and the truth about what we speak about the natural law, about morality, and how we deal with our neighbours, how we deal with God, etc. The things that have tended to be, you know, we do away with in the New Testament are things to do with uh, worship and, uh, and purity laws and those sort of things. So I'll just, just briefly mention how Christ relates to the law of Moses. Um, so in some ways, he, what I've just spoken about, the covenant logic of the cross, is that Christ fulfills, in a sense, the negatives of the, of the covenant. But he also fulfills the, what we call the positives of the law as well. Um, and the three aspects of the, of the law of Moses are the moral law, so this is the Ten Commandments, basically. Basic natural law. This is true for all people, so not just for Israel, it's the natural law for all humanity. So, Christ fulfills that. He also um, fulfills the what we call the ceremonial law, which is the other aspect of the Mosaic law, and the ceremonial law was all the instructions that, um, that worship. This is the vast majority of the laws about how to worship God truly in the Old Testament. And finally, we have the juridical laws, which is to do with how Israel was to be governed. Christ fulfills these, and this is most famously uh, drawn out by uh, almost. Uh, thoroughly drawn out by St Thomas Aquinas as Christ comes as 
priest, prophet, and king to fulfill these three aspects of the law. So as the prophet, he fulfills the natural law, the, the, uh, the moral law of the Old Testament. He does this in two ways. One, he's, he fulfills it perfectly in the sense of he's living it out. He lives it perfectly. But he also teaches about it perfectly. It's a prophetic role. As priest, Christ as priest fulfills the ceremonial law of the Old Testament most fully because he becomes not only the, the high priest but also the sacrifice himself. And he is the once and for all perfect sacrifice, the perfect worship offered to the Father that the Old Testament could only hint at, could draw, could build upon and, and hint at that Christ perfects it as priest. And finally, as king, he fulfills the juridical law, the juridical law of the Old, Old Testament. And in this sense, he's, um, he, he's the most perfect uh, um, ruler, in a sense, of, of heaven and earth. Fills this, this aspect of this being the, the son of David, the anointed one. Um, I might leave it there. There's a few others I could perhaps talk about, but um, I might leave it there if anyone has any questions. But I, I suppose like, the main thing I, I would like to, to share, in a sense, to, to summarise is that um, really there's no part of, the, of, of Scripture that... that, um, that um, that has no meaning. There's no, no, no word of scripture that doesn't have a meaning in the senses, as I began with, with the fathers, of being able to be sort of uh, stripped away the husk and become a living grain, which can become nourishing bread. The important thing is that it's, it's read as a whole. It's not uh, separated. One of the great tragedies in, uh, in theology, since really the Enlightenment, but in Catholic theology probably since the 60s, has been the the separation of uh, so many things, and one of the one of the things that's been separated is separating the the, the literal sense of the text and, 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 the, and the spiritual sense of the text. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum apologetics lecture by Paul Morrissey. For more Lumen Verum apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.